Welcome to the Nonprofit Exchange Podcast. Stories by leaders for leaders to help you raise the bar on your own excellence to release the potential inside of you. Now, here's today's podcast. Greetings for another version of the Nonprofit Exchange. This is Hugh Ballou and Christian Lafer and Russell Dennis here with you as co-host and Christian, as you've heard, is our, our guest today. And we're dealing with a topic that um, might be invisible to lots of nonprofits. I'm, I'm sure that it is. And so Christian has, has a couple of entities we're going to talk about. Russell, how are you doing today? It's another fine day here in Colorado, and it's great to to connect with my neighbor, Christian, here in Denver, Colorado, who's got something that if you're a new nonprofit or if you've been around for a while, this is something you absolutely have to have. And we're going to we're going to ask him some questions throughout this this interview. And, uh, you know, Christian, just watch out. Uh, Russell has the hard questions. <laughs> so. All right. Christian, welcome to the Nonprofit Exchange. And let's start out with you telling people just a little bit about yourself and how you came to be doing what you're doing now. Absolutely. And uh, Hugh, Russell, it's an honor to be here. Uh, The way this got started is like uh, many movements in in history, uh, a little bit of moral outrage was involved. Um, I am a uh, foster and adoptive parent, so I've dealt with nonprofits on, on, you know, later in my life. My sister is developmentally disabled, and so at a young age, I had a fair amount of exposure to things like Special Olympics, et cetera. And uh, back in uh, around 2008, 2009, I volunteered to help a few friends and be involved with a project to get a 501c3 up and running. And uh, like many things I've looked at in life, I I said, well, how hard can that be? Uh, I'll take the application and and you guys can do some of the other things. And what I found was uh, I I called because I had some questions about what's a fairly, fairly opaque process. And I couldn't get a hold of my agent. I was told by the front desk of the IRS, don't worry, this will take you like a year to get approved uh, for your 501c3. And uh, I couldn't really find any reliable information. And I was faced with this sort of moral problem where if I wanted to start a used car lot, it's $50 and 20 minutes on the Secretary of State website. If I wanted to help feed hungry kids or do something good in the world, it was going to be thousands of dollars in a year of torture uh, trying to figure this process out. And uh, there's a funny story I won't go on about, but I basically cold called into every extension of the IRS and I just made up extensions north and south of that one phone number they gave me for that particular agent. And I grilled IRS agents until I thought I had learned every problem they run into on these files. And I began getting, uh, I volunteered to do this a couple more times and I got 30 and 60 day approvals in the face of an average one year approval delay. And uh, from there, I, I thought maybe I would have something that would help other people. Oh, that's awesome. I wonder if one of those people you talked to was Russell Dennis. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. I was pretty persistent. Yeah, he was. Um, I, boy, I admire that. I, what I've learned in the short time that we've known each other is that you are a no, no quit. You're not a no fail. You're, you're, you're committed to your vision and you're not going to stop. So I've I have learned that about you. We call it a lot of things, but uh, you're focused and passionate and tenacious about it. So I, what successful people do is what other people aren't willing to do. 
And, and so in the short period of time, <laughs> I've, I've seen that leadership trait in you. Um, now, we want to talk about two Thank entities you. That, that you own, and they serve nonprofits. This is not a sales webinar, but we want to talk about the value that you bring and the experience that you bring to nonprofits. There's, a people, there's people on the webinar. This is a podcast that we record, so the people listening to the podcast will not uh, see anything, but we're not showing anything, but there's people on the webinar, and people on the webinar, if you want to ask a question, there's a button for Q&A, and if you're watching us live on Facebook, and by the way, this, this uh, podcast is recorded every Tuesday at 2 Eastern um, live. <laughs> and um, I see people on this uh, webinar that were with me last Tuesday in one of our um, Center Vision Leadership Empowerment Symposiums. So we were down in Florida um, recently, and we're going to be in two places in Virginia coming up. So look at, um, look at uh, leadershipworkshop.org, and you'll find it be live. So, so Christian, you've got a domain. It's all under one company, but I'm going to talk about these specific initiatives that you have. And that story you just told, um, a lot of people don't start their own nonprofit because they, they think it's just too expensive, too troublesome. You have a site called Instant Nonprofit. So why did you start that? And what's the, what's, what do you help people do there? Absolutely. And it's kind of like if you're familiar with Intuit, as a matter of fact, most people probably aren't familiar with Intuit. That's the company that owns TurboTax and uh, QuickBooks. Mm -hmm. And when you think of the names TurboTax and QuickBooks, they, they, they evoke exactly what those products do. And it's kind of the same thing with instantnonprofit.com and fundraisingcompliance.com. Those go to the appropriate product pages for the stage of your nonprofit. And we're here to serve uh, through the entire nonprofit life cycle. So instantnonprofit.com has a simple process whereby uh, you can sign up in minutes. And once you, uh, you know, do the transaction, and it's a three-step process and it's very simple. Uh, step one, just like TurboTax, you would enter the information, which we've translated from IRS speak to English. Uh, very simple process. You can get through that process very quickly, 30 to 60 minutes in most cases, and give us everything that our staff needs to go all the way from idea to IRS approved 501c3. Once you get out of step one and into step two, your incorporation and EIN uh, obtainment, which is the same as a tax ID, those processes immediately move forward and our staff files the incorporation and gets your EIN. And Technically, once you have those two items, you're officially in business. And I'll, I'll, this, I'll make this quick, but the reason that you can be officially in business and even get tax-deductible donations at that point is because as long as you complete the IRS approval process within 27 months, the IRS's official policy is to backdate the date of tax-exempt status to the date of incorporation. So... Once we file the EIN and we get the incorporation process going, most states take about 10 days to get that back to us. We move forward on step two, where we create what we call the IRS package. It goes beyond just the 1023 actual application, like many government processes. It's not just the application, but ancillary documents that need to be filed along with that application to be valid and go all the way through the process without a hitch. And those include things like we provide your bylaws, we provide a conflict of interest policy, compensation policy, and we even provide some 
ancillary documents that might not go to the IRS, but will help you run your nonprofit, such as your initial um, board resolutions authorizing all of this activity. And a board minutes, a word template that allows you to record your board minutes because we don't believe we want people to succeed and we don't think you should have to Google around looking for the basic documents you need to run your org. And we even provide a memo for organizations to give to their donors, their prospective donors early on that explains this IRS policy. So someone can write you a check today ahead of getting the IRS letter. Once that's all complete and the, and we send it back to the customer for approval, mostly last name, spelling, and, you know, errors or omissions, not really, you know, we have all the IRS red flags taken care of at that point. And you get your own concierge through this whole process in case something is missing, or maybe there's a contradiction somewhere. Once we've steered you around all those potential uh, barriers at the IRS, we send you the package, the customer approves it, and we move on to step three. And at that time, we collect the IRS filing fee, and we submit that package to the IRS with that incorporation that has then come back from the state. And 95% uh, of our files don't get any additional follow-on questions from the IRS, but if they do ask any additional questions or request some additional information, we also guide that process through because we're here to help you succeed and not to just uh, provide a service. So um, that's a whole lot of steps and a whole lot of attention to detail. And I, you know, I can realize that, that um, there's a real challenge for IRS trying to screen out the people that are interested in fraud or money laundering. And right. we hear that in the news all the time. So <clears throat> I imagine it's, uh, it's their due diligence, which really protects us all. So I can understand exactly they need that level of detail. But most people don't know that. So do you ever have people come to you that tried on their own and got stuck and you have to help them refine it and re resubmit it? Is that an option that happens for, for you? Yes, and while I won't mention uh, competitors by name, let's just generically call them Rocket Zoom. Um, sometimes we get customers who have tried other companies and get stuck because they were sold a package that sounded like a complete nonprofit package, but it only included the nonprofit entity formation, the incorporation. Or they gave a lawyer money and that lawyer ran out of hours before they completed the job. Or they simply just got stuck in board meetings because the IRS has put out publicly in the past that this takes 50 to 100 hours. We reduce that to just an hour or two of most people's time. And so what we do is we actually do the IRS's job for them in part. We help screen out the organizations that simply are not performing an exempt activity, which is the definition of, you know, that, that uh, renders an entity eligible to be a 501c3. And then we also remove any of the contradictions or problems where they don't have the appropriate number of board members or whatever it is prior to submitting to the IRS. So the IRS agent that gets our file is pretty happy to do so. And it's why we get lightning fast approvals. Uh, our record is nine days from the phone call from the customer to an IRS letter in their mailbox. I am not promising that that happens um, for every customer, but it just shows that we've got this process very dialed and we want people to serve their mission and not get stuck in the bureaucracy. Well, I'll imagine you've created some points with IRS. Um, so what yeah. about people who've tried it on their own? They didn't hire service and they got stuck and they come to you and it's a, it's a royal mess. Well, there are a couple of, there are really two main buckets that those would fall into. One would be that they have some ideas and some maybe things written down, mission statement, et cetera, 
but haven't submitted anything and the others who have submitted something at some point along the way. Either they have an EIN, sometimes they try to use an EIN that they had from another business, those cannot be repurposed, or, or they've filed in corporation, but maybe they filed an LLC instead of a nonprofit organization or nonprofit corporation. Um, in those cases, we don't charge any additional to, re, to, to file the proper entity and move forward through the process. Um, if they just have stuff written down on paper and some ideas, we help draw that into a very easy process. So they don't need to worry about sort of the big enchilada. All they need to do is uh, take that next bite of the elephant and we just right. set those things out. I want to move on to the topic of the day. That's helpful to have that foundation, though, because I think a lot of people are really intimidated by the whole process. So <clears throat> let's say we got a, uh, I file and we go through the process and I get my approval letter. Well, um, I'm in business. Well, not yet. So what, what Russell and I do from CenterVision is help people build their strategy and build, you know, you have a board, but they don't really function until we learn how to lead the board. So we provide all of that, that systematic stuff, Absolutely. Building, strategy, building the board, building your skill, defining your sources of revenue. But there's a thing that people skip over and it's filing with your filing. Yeah. Filing with your state for compliance. So what is compliance? What does that mean? So what the, what most states call this in their, you know, uh, legal or, or in their statutes is charitable solicitation registration requirements. And that is a mouthful. So we just call that fundraising compliance. And what that means is that 41 states out of the 50, including Washington, D.C., have um, regulations around being allowed to fundraise to their residents in their state. And you have to file uh, to be permitted to approach any of their residents in their state. And back in the old days, that meant something pretty simple because you weren't reaching any people outside your geographic area unless you were doing direct mail or phone calling, uh, typical outbound activities. Now we live in a whole different world that the law is often not prepared for because everyone's donate button appears in every state just by nature of the internet and ubiqu ubiquitous connectivity. So it's created a real dilemma for nonprofits, um, but there's a double-sided double side to that coin. Can't we use technology to lower the cost and hassle of being compliant in all 41 states? And Yippee-Ki-Yay is here to uh, offer that. Well, that's a, that's, you know, I looked at um, some of those requirements and they vary widely from state to state and some of them are quite intimidating. Some of them cost money, some of them don't. Um, right. Now, just going forward, um, Karen Franks on the, on the webinar, she asked, uh, are churches affected by compliance? Churches have to file as well? Churches are an interesting, well, obviously, I mean, the, the very founding of this country involved uh, people of faith. And so churches have some special treatment um, wherein they don't need to file even for 501c3 technically to be allowed to take those, those uh, deductions. Uh, I'm sorry, those donations. However, many churches do file for 501c3 because it makes it easier to provide a verifiable receipt for a tax deduction for people who give money to it. It's, it's the same thing with um, uh, state legislation regarding charitable solicitation requirements or fundraising compliance. Many or most states will exempt churches, but 
ministries today and, and the, the faith community today, there are probably many times the number of ministries that have all kinds of different purposes and, and uh, activities that aren't churches per se. And so um, you can get an exemption being a church, but that's a very specific, narrow definition by the IRS. And so um, churches are often exempt, but it does not cover the majority of ministries. Okay. That's a really good answer. I'm going to, I'm going to ask you something about compliance. Now there's, um, as you were talking about the setup of the nonprofit and you talked about your bylaws and you talked about the template for your minutes, there's another kind of compliance when, which is recording the official actions in your corporate record book. And so, um, I think a lot of charities don't do that. So you, you have your minutes, you have contracts you sign, you have resolutions that your board's approved. Those need to go in your official record book. So that's one kind yeah. of compliance, which um, if you ever had an audit or a lawsuit, uh, people would go to that source document to see if you had permission to do what you're really doing. Right. We're talking about a different kind of compliance here. This is the uh, compliance for fundraising. And so, it, and it varies, it varies a whole lot um, from, from state to state. So, what about the states that don't require it? Is there any kind of action needed in those nine states that don't require it? No, in those states, um, you know, direct mail, online, social media, all of those things are not uh, regulated as, as uh, you know, under charitable fundraising. Uh, but the interesting thing in the 41 states that do regulate, it is in pretty much every manner that you could possibly find a way to raise money are regulated and do trigger those fundraising requirements. So we get calls every day um, asking, well, I only, you know, I only get donations in these 25 states or um, what have you. I'm doing social media, but we're, we're, we're up, just getting up and running. Technically, any way that someone can possibly find a way to your donate button or to the organization, it does not need to be a direct appeal. Uh, triggers those fundraising requirements. Um, and what I was going to say about your 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 uh, issue with complying with uh, basic corporate governance, which you're the expert on that, and I'd, I'd, I'd love to turn this interview around someday and ask you some of these questions. Uh, but the board materials, the resolutions, those kinds of things generally stay inside the organization and only come out if someone wants to look into those and they're very important to keep, but those aren't really uh, filed with a government entity. Fundraising compliance and charitable solicitation registration, same thing. Um, what's happened now is that governments are levering, leveraging technology so that it's not only a requirement where something you know bad can happen or a penalty can, can occur to the organization. It's actually positive opportunity for a nonprofit because donors are now searching in publicly available databases in these states to see if your organization is in that database. If they are, then they understand that you're a best practices organization and they will feel better about making a donation to your organization. So um, those the, these fundraising regulations forcing you to file in those states can actually be turned around and it can allow you to project a more transparent and more uh, be, like a best practices, high quality uh, feel for your organization, which is becoming more and more important. 
So we've covered what it is to be registered for fundraising compliance. We've covered uh, who needs to be registered. Um, so what happens if you don't register? So if you don't register and uh, let's just use that example, the proverbial, uh, you know, lady from Albuquerque types in your name to the New Mexico uh, charitable database and your organization is not there. That may prompt a phone call to the regulating body, whether that's the attorney general in some states or the secretary of state. And an inquiry might be made as to whether you are conducting these fundraising activities in their state. And lo and behold, as I said, social donate button or any other activity, including events, can um, trigger either a, a cease and desist letter from a regulator or an inquiry you know, to, to answer questions uh, sent to your organization. Are you conducting these activities? Do you have any donors? And it can really open up a whole can of worms uh, for an organization. So the best thing to do is get out in front of these and register in certainly the states that you act, have activity and donors, uh, but ideally across the country. And uh, that's, you know, that's how that works is uh, there can be penalties up to $10,000 for the first offense. New York can be very tough on organizations, for example. Wow. So um, according to your, and I'll make this, um, this handout, there's a, there's a PDF you have about compliance and it, you have a map of the country. And one person on the webinar asked, what are the nine states? And it looks like it's Arizona, Idaho, Montana, Wyoming, South Dakota, North Dakota, Iowa, Indiana, and Vermont. Is that right? That sounds right. Um, I try to keep my geography as straight as I can. Um, what state? Well, yeah, they all... The, they're all very cold except for Arizona, which is really hot. So, uh, oh, I, that's what I was thinking of. Arizona is, it's very rare that a state repeals a regulation on business or nonprofits, but Arizona did have the law and repealed it not that long ago. Oh my, oh my. So Russell, you've been, you've been, um, Russell has, has the perfect head. You know, you and I have hair, he's got the perfect head. <laughs> and he, and he um, has a lot of brain underneath that perfect head. And uh, so Russell's been thinking, uh, what are your observations? Or what, what probing question do you have for our guest? Well, I'm in the right lighting here today because I've got fuzz buff on top and under the chin that's very gray and you can't really see that <laughs> here in this lighting. So I'll always make use of your background. Yes, uh, but now I, I think that more and more, there's more of an opportunity or more of a probability that you will see a state go and look at whether a charity is registered yes. or not in the federal government. Uh, a lot is due to attrition and shortfalls and changes in personnel, uh, but states are up against it for revenue. And so, so they're looking at these things uh, and seeing if there's an opportunity here. So you really want to be in compliance. And I agree that uh, while the application is really complicated, the, the information that comes out of that and the information that comes out of 990s, which are the tax returns, are really great opportunities to do some marketing and talking about the work that you're doing because it shows up in sites like GuideStar and Charity Navigator who actually build profiles. So... Uh, and before uh, before Kristen's product, uh, I had seen uh, one 
application that covered maybe 34 states. It was a common registration. That was as close as anything came to being able to register. But now there's an all-in-one tool. I think it's fantastic to have that and simplify the process and, and to be able to answer questions that talk about what you're doing that are compliant. It's really great to have somebody that's actually doing the work and asking all the right questions to streamline the process. So I'm really excited about what you've got here. It's unique and there's nothing like it out there. And I think it's really important uh, for nonprofits to do this. And if you're registered, uh, more people can see you. So now um, the thought that really came to mind as we talked about this was uh, the filing fees that come with some states versus others. And I know that you can help people with registration. What kind of investment is somebody going to be looking at to get that full national registration? Uh, is there a number that you have uh, with the fees involved, or is that something that people can step into uh, uh, in phases? Absolutely. So. Uh one quick, I just want to mention really quickly, you mentioned that there was a common registration form that covered a number of states. That has now been rendered defunct for all intents and purposes. Um, it was a great idea because as I felt uh, starting this whole thing, and, and now we've got you know, uh, stakeholders and staff and uh, serving a lot of people out there, um, it shouldn't be hard to do good. That is, is, is essentially our core proposition. And so I, I thought it was great to see the URS come out. Uh, the problem is when you have 41 different states, they're constantly tweaking their requirements or raising or lowering their threshold, et cetera. So it is an extremely complicated maze of uh, regulations to determine where a nonprofit that raises uh, you know, 50,000 a year or 5,000 a year versus a million a year. Um, and do they have outside count, uh, fundraising council? There's all kinds of complications. So the URS has been pretty much rendered, um, uh, you know, not uh, relevant anymore. Uh, but it was a great attempt. And obviously, you know, create, uh, complete one set of applications on, on our system and have 41 states go out and, and be registered is, is really where technology is, is you know, enabling us to go. So um, as far as the fees, so I know that we have the lowest cost and highest value uh, product out there and it's $130 per state. And at a certain point, when you get almost to the, to the maximum number of states, uh, we do have a discount, right? So it's about $48.95 to register in all of the states. Um, and then it really depends from there on the level of revenue that the organization has. The fees can be, and, and what we do for very small organizations is we get them exemptions in as many states because that eliminates the filing fee. Uh, and again, I wish I could make it hard and fast and just have a few columns with rules on how this works. But um, with, with, with all the, there are as many combinations of how this can work as there are stars in the galaxy, really. So uh, what I would say is that you'd probably start at about $1,000, so maybe $25 per state on average. But if we can get you out of that altogether, that's absolutely what we'll do. Now, what what confronts some organizations in this process is they say, "Wow, you know, five thousand is a lot of money." 
Um, and we, we estimate that we're about one third of what the, the top flight attorneys that, you know, the big firms that do this for a lot of organizations, we're probably about one third uh, or, or, four, or 40% of that cost. Um, because there still is a lot of uh, attention that needs to be paid by humans to make sure that the uh, agencies are complying with their own rules and getting this done. Um, so we, what we do is we will do, uh, we'll go by number of states to start uh, and we'll get that pro and then we will dial in an exact amount for filing fees prior to the actual filing for the customer. So um, Christian, I think it's important to um, <clears throat> out of integrity, just talk about that, that center vision is offering both of your programs through our portal. Um, both the incorporation piece and this compliance piece. And uh, we do have a business relationship. I want to declare that, that we're, we're offering it because we believe it's of high value and it's a big missing component, both the, the difficulty in setting up your nonprofit. Then we, we have programs to help people be able to attract money. And then you help them stay out of jail. <laughs> so, so, or keep the, keep, help them keep the money instead of paying uh, fines. We have some uh, people that are actively listening that have questions. Um, we're, I'm assuming that um, we're talking about continental United States and territories, right? Poland. Yes. Um, what's interesting is we rec as a company, we recommend having someone on U.S. soil on the board, right? A U.S. citizen, or at least someone who's got a tax ID number here, uh, just partly for simplicity. The IRS does not actually require uh, that. To, uh, on the board, you can have all foreign nationals, but we do recommend at least having one American national um, on the uh, on the board. But uh, the entity, of course, does need to be formed out of one of the U.S. states. But what we often do is we have organizations that are doing great work overseas, and they simply contact us, establish the beachhead here, file we file the in whatever state they prefer. Uh, sometimes it's Washington D.C. if they want to have some of that international profile and then we move forward from there and get them that tax exempt uh status from the irs because uh, as we know the u.s is high charitable donation uh base here donor base and that can be used very effectively to help these foreign nonprofits who then have a sister relationship with an organization in another country what i find is that it's more regulated over there often to take american money than it is here Absolutely. Absolutely. So there's a lot of higher standards and regulations in many other countries, but, um, and I do have clients that have a, an American based 501 C three, and then they have a, a one based in another country and they, that's, that's, they have to keep that accounting straight, but, but they do have to do all the compliance in America because they are raising money in America. So but right. the, all the stuff you're talking about, um, is for American, American companies. Um, and then uh, foreign laws apply to those that are that are out of uh, out of the country. Um, Mark, Morris, hi, Mark. Um, how do you suppose you're coming into a pre-existing organization and you want to find out if this organization is registered in which states? How do you find out? So there is not uh, one central, well, there are a couple of different ways. Uh, guides, uh, Russell mentioned GuideStar earlier, and that is yet another advantage of being compliant across these states is GuideStar has these best practices tiers, gold, platinum, et cetera. And so GuideStar, um, as one of its uh, vetting processes there, 
determines whether the organization is registered and, and compliant with various laws. So that's one way to see. Uh, the other way is get good old fashioned hop on the phone uh, or in the states where they have a publicly searchable database, go ahead and, and search for your organization or the organization of concern. You can search for any organization. Search for those organizations in, um, in that state to determine its, uh, its compliance status. Um, if this is something where we are picking up a new organization, um, you know, we, we can help with some of these types of things um, in doing what we call a free compliance check, right? We want to help organizations understand the implication for their organization. And so we do, if you go to fundraisingcompliance.com, you can sign up for a free compliance check. Mm-hmm. Oh, really? Is that with you? Not with me personally, but with one of our ABLE staff and a oh, okay. compliance okay. specialist. Okay. All right. Um, so, um, how do you convince us, does somebody ask a question? Um, I wasn't sure what they meant, but I, I'm, I'm guessing that how do you convince your board members, um, that you don't need an attorney to do this? Um, probably by, uh, setting up a compliance conversation, a, a free consult and providing, uh, for example, the handout that, that you have there, it explains very simply, this is a, this is not a legal procedure. It's, it's quasi legal or, or default legal because people simply can't find someone else to do it. Uh, that, that would be um, adept at complying with the letter of the law. But what we have found is attorneys are actually using our services to both form 501c3s and get their clients compliant because for the amount of time they, they could spend, what lawyers really should be doing is providing counsel to their clients on how to reduce liability and achieve their strategic objectives, not necessarily filing, um, you know, paperwork and, and applications. So we specialize in, in this in a way that gets a much faster result. And because you don't have to rely on our for success, there's, there's an objective way to know that we're successful at this. And this is why we only get 10 stars out of 10 on Better Business Bureau or five out of five, not even a 4.9 on Facebook. And the reason is there is an objective standard and that is the letter from the governing agency. You will get a letter from Washington, D.C., New Jersey, whatever state entity or the IRS definitively saying you are in fact a 501c3 tax exempt org and that you are uh, compliant with all the fundraising regulations in that state. And so the proof is in the pudding. And uh, this is not something that requires lawyers to do things like go into court or, or, or contest things uh, because there's such a simple objective standard. It is pretty complicated, but our sole job is to do this one set of operations, which is uh, get nonprofits over these bureaucratic hurdles so they can achieve their mission. Yes, that's the bottom line. And we, we really want to cut through all this um, confusion because it's, it's a lot of work. People want to just do good, like you said, and it, and it shouldn't be hard, but we realize that there's some protections that need to be in place to protect this, this, this entity that we've, it's a privilege to, to have something that's tacky in. Absolutely. And we want to do our part to make sure that, that um, we preserve the integrity because we all contribute to that. Um, so, um, 
Let um, me add real quickly, if it's okay, we do have attorneys that we consult with regularly that are part of our, uh, you know, part of our, our staff, our, our um, resources that we have here at Yippie-Kaye, um, that if anything, if there's any gray area, or if there's a question that a, a customer has that might be a little bit outside the norm, while our specialists do this day in and day out, it's all they do, uh, and they're not jamming this in between a divorce and a real estate deal, and, and I, I'm not denigrating attorneys often, uh, often they are, they are stuck not being able to have a full-time legal career doing nothing but nonprofit work. So when you mix lots of different things in, it's hard to become an absolute expert at this one thing. But in the cases where we do have a question that the nonprofit specialist thinks is a little bit ambiguous or there might be a conflict, we go directly to one of our attorneys uh, who is, you know, pra practices before the bar uh, in, in at least one state, I believe, too, and only does nonprofit work. So we do have those legal resources so that we are 100% sure that every file that goes out the door is for a legally tax-exempt compliant organization. And in fact, we have a 100% approval rating, partly because of our pre-screening and partly because there has never been a situation where we have not been able to resolve and square that circle. Help the customer. Some, sometimes people come and they have something they want to do that's more suited for, to a for-profit, but they have exempt activities over here. And we will counsel them to go start a for-profit corporation if necessary while we take care of their nonprofit. Um. That's really helpful, Christian, because there are lots of lots of nuances to uh, people come up with exceptions. And we have this a person has a question um, um, about um, you have a for-profit entity and a non-profit entity, and it's around uh, some real estate and elder care. And so there's some nuances to that. So rather than getting on um, a specific challenge there, unless it's a generic question you want to answer, I would like to connect you with that person by an email after this interview. Sure. And, and um, so basically if you have a for-profit entity, a C Corp, S Corp or LLC, and you found another entity, which is your tax exempt organization, are there any particular flags that you need to watch out for when you're having two entities like that? Absolutely. And it can be as simple as someone wants to make it, but, um, what we generally recommend is the IRS wants to watch out for what's called a captured or, or a connected entity. And so it's very important to have, of course, completely distinct bank accounts. You would have a completely distinct entity and tax ID number or EIN. And there should be a distinct decision-making process. Many organizations, you know, uh, Habitat for Humanity, you know, our local chapter here, they may be heavily, you know, there, there may be heavy involvement by a particular construction company locally, and they may even have several people from that construction company on the board or involved in the decisions of Habitat for Humanity. But that decision-making process does need to be separate and distinct, and um, there want you, you want to have enough sunshine brought into that process so that those, uh, so that no one can ever be accused of commingling funds or doing anything that what the IRS defines as inuring benefit to an individual or corporation. And all that means is, is this nonprofit unfairly benefiting someone by steering uh, contra building contracts, for example, or something? Or is there a bidding process? Has there been some minimal activity done by the board of the nonprofit 
to say, even if we are going to work with this construction company that wants to give us discounted materials and labor, has there been a process where we are ascertaining that we are getting these services and products for at or below market value so that nobody's unduly becoming enriched by those activities? That's pretty simple if you put those things in place, and that is spelled out in the conflict of interest policy and compensation policies that we provide with our service. As it gets more complicated, I would turn them to someone like Hugh Ballou, who helps boards uh, uh, use best practices to keep themselves on the straight and narrow, because in this world of forced transparency with the internet, uh, you, you know, secrets will come out and, and you know, you don't want to have a lot of unresolved uh, open loops out there. So, Russell, that's that's very helpful. There's just lots of little nuances. That's the reason you have an active board of people who are experts. And it's probably a good idea to have um, some attorney that, that is, is uh, on your board that's a volunteer that can help steer you with these best practices on the, from a legal standpoint and a CPA from the from the accounting standpoint. Um, Russell asked you about the cost for the compliance piece, and that just there's 50 states, less than 5,000, that's less than 100 a state. That's pretty reasonable because there's a fair amount of work in that. And um, um, so is that an annual fee? Once you register, you have to register again, or is that once and done? So that's a very important uh, distinction. The formation process, getting 501c3, you only do that one time, you, you incorporate one time, and then you uh, apply for IRS tax exempt status one time if you don't let it lapse. Um, and then from year to year, you do the 990 tax return, uh, for, for lack of a better term, and your annual report. The 990 doesn't cost anything, except if you have to, as you grow, you might have to have a bookkeeper or CPA prepare the 990. But when you're small, when you're below $50,000 per year, the amount of information that the IRS gets on the 990 is very, very minimal. They, they used to call it the postcard. And then the, the, the annual report is maybe $20. When you move over to the compliance slide side, that is a recurring cost. And that's why we, you know, we advertise or we, we talk about saving organizations, you know, $70,000 over 10 years is because our service is about, is, is less than half of what an attorney might charge. And so those are recurring costs year over year. And what we do with smaller nonprofits is we help them block and tackle their way to uh, compliance status. Uh, maybe taking the five states that have the most enforcement risk or the five or 10 states that, that might, where their donors reside or they have staff and operations. So we'll weigh a few factors and then we'll provide a nonprofit with a roadmap that is commensurate with the level of activity that they have and frankly, the funding that they have. You can tell someone all day long that they have to go get their headlight that's out on their car repaired, but if they don't get paid until Friday, um, the best thing for them to do is not speed or drive at night. Exactly. <laughs> All right. So you've got to file every year for this. This. Uh, yes, compliance. correct. All right. And so the, there's different prices for different states, I would imagine. It's 130 per state across the board. We try to keep things very simple because uh, you, you present too many variables and it stops people's decision making. And um, there's a fee, a filing fee with some states over and above that. Correct. Uh, some states, as you said, it's a zero fee. New York, which is a you know very regulated state, has a fairly low fee of twenty five dollars. 
Um, so states have various fees. On the other end of the spectrum in both complexity and cost, Hawaii is very low cost filing fee if you're a small organization, but they continue to scale that up instead of just saying, well, if you're above 50,000 or above 500,000 or whatever, it's a certain price. Hawaii scales up to a fairly high fee for organizations that are doing say 5 million. Um, but there are only a couple of states that scale along with the amount of revenue. I believe Virginia is a hundred dollars uh, filing fee um, in a multi-page form which looks scary. Um, all of the forms, Florida is a nightmare. Uh, imagine filing for 501c3 41 times. Oh my word. <laughs> um, Russell, what are you thinking here? Well, I'm thinking that this is really good. Uh, you know, a lot of my information is, is outdated, but this solves a lot of problems on a lot of levels because by having someone work with you, which can become prohibitively expensive, you've got somebody that goes through this process with you and and can take every state on a case-by-case -case basis. It really saves a lot of money, but keeps you compliance. Uh, and uh, it's really important to have all of this marketing information down and to make sure you don't run into any troubles with the conflict of interest uh, running the trouble, making sure that everything that you do, uh, and this is why I talk about having CPAs and attorneys, so that if you've got for-profit and, and, and social profit entities and just a group of places where your revenue is coming from, all of your transactions are what you call arm's length. So it would be something that somebody in the, in the general market would do. And if you can keep those uh, those things in balance, uh, you're going to be fine there because a lot of nonprofits have what we call unrelated business revenue as well as uh, mission-based business revenue. So a lot of conversations you can have. On the subject of having attorneys to file it, the IRS process, uh, they had counsel put all of these questions together and they wanted to make sure that they covered all the bases around federal statutes to make sure that once those questions were answered satisfactorily, that somebody would be in compliance. So you don't necessarily need an attorney to put it together. It has it helps to have somebody knowledgeable. And this is a unique platform. I've never seen anything like this before that actually asked the questions in English because if you go out there and start looking at instructions, it gets really fun and take it from me. I had 70,000 pages of code way through on the job and it's clear as mud from time to time. So if you can simplify this, it's an investment. It's not an expense, it's an investment. And this is, I mean, just from a cost, uh, an investment perspective, I haven't seen anything better. Yeah. Well, I appreciate it. We, we want to solve people's problems that the people who want to do good in the world, we want to help solve their problems. But it was a real epiphany for me to, I mean, who, who likes bureaucracy, you know, no one, right. But what if we could show a little love to the, the, the person who's at the IRS, like, like you were, or at the state agency who gets messy files every day. What if we could show them a little love? And we actually, when we started all of this, we called our packages a love letter to a bureaucrat. 
Because if we can make their day better and make them smile and go, wow, somebody cared about what I have to do in this desk, a thankless job, aren't they going to take extra special care? And that's why our customers get such rapid results and why we our, 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 our communications with these agencies are appreciated because we're helping make their job easier as well as the customer. If we can just go around spreading that kind of attitude in the world, I think we'd all get along a lot better. We're, we're, we're approaching the end of our interview time. And uh, I want to ask you one, one question. I want to do a sponsor announcement and then I want to give you a chance to do a closing tip. But um, what, what, um, what's regulated? What kind of funding is regulated? Activities or whatever. That's a great question. Um, so any, any manner, any conceivable manner that would result in a donation, this could be uh, something where there's some swag, maybe, maybe you're selling a t-shirt. Uh, maybe there is a program fee for an event that you have. Maybe you are just promote tweeting things out. Hey, uh, look at the kids that we served in, in with clean water in Africa here or, or right in our backyard, you know, I have an after-school program. Sign up here. Um, all of those means electronic, offline, direct mail, phones, um, and even quite indirect uh, types of fundraising, like corporate uh, collaborations, where you, you you're at the supermarket and the chocolate bars there with the doggy and kitty on it. All all of those types of things are, are actually regulable uh, activities from a fundraising perspective. So um, it's important to recognize that because these things have gone to court at this point. These things have been reviewed and, and revised by legislators. And when they've come down and decided where to split, split things, uh, it's come pretty much to sweep up all types of fundraising activity. People are saying thank you that are watching the webinar. And yes, thank you. Before I give you a chance to do your summary, um, I want to mention our, we have sponsors that make these broadcasts possible. Today's sponsor is WordSprint. WordSprint prints non, uh, nonprofit performance 360 magazine. They also work with charities maintaining connections with their donors. One of the things we don't do is we don't tell the donors what happened to their money. We don't tell them on a regular rhythm, this is the impact your money is having on humankind. And so Bill Gilmer and his team at WordSprint will give you a free consultation, but it's important to create a program and manage a program. And he breaks it into 30%. It's the right person you're sending the message to Two, It's the right message. And three, it's the rhythm. We want to send out a message to say, Hey, give us a donation before we, we continue to work on relationship and tell them what we've done with their last donation. 30, 30, 30, 10% is the appearance. So it's important if you send quarterly mailings, for instance, that you, you talk about what you've done, you talk about what you've done, you talk about what you've done, and then you say, how about donating for next year? So it's a whole process that really works. And of course, anywhere you're mailing um, those letters or your postcards or your packages that you're going to send to donors, you have to be registered and compliant in those states. So wordsprint.com. Um, Christian, I'm going to put the link in the in the the, um, the podcast copy. I'm going to put the link into the website so that people can just that. click on it for the compliance. And again, we offer this through Centervision because we know it's a it's a value to to our tribe. We don't have people in here that are snake bowl salesmen. We have 
bona fide people of integrity that have really good value to give. So, um, Russell, this has been a good interview, hasn't it? This has been fantastic. There's nothing like up-to-date compliance and having the tools available so that you can focus on your good work because you can really invest a lot of time in being compliant and getting registered. And that takes a lot of energy. It can literally suck the oxygen out of a boardroom. So this is a simple solution at a reasonable investment that keeps you compliant, up to date, so that you can focus on doing the important work that you're doing, changing lives out there in the community. So thank you, Christian, for all that you do. And, uh, and I'm going to be talking more about this in the future because it's a product whose time has come. Christian, take us out. Thank you. Um, what is your, your parting tip or thought you want to leave with the listeners? Here's a parting tip that is exciting because we don't want to just look at spending more money from our nonprofit or, or even investing in compliance, which can be very positive. These feel like costs. And what's really exciting is if you look at it from the donor perspective and you were to take your list of your, of your top donors uh, for your organization and give them a call and say two things. We are interested in being a best practices organization and we'd like to know what that means to you and let that donor speak and then ask the donor, uh, what was the reason that they first gave to your organization and let them recall what it was that emotionally connected them to your organization. You will not have the problem of compliance costing you. You will actually have it come back in, in, in many, many times over to you because you're being responsive to the concerns of the donor, which more and more all the time, they want to make sure that they're giving money to the right organizations. That means they care. And that means that they're doing the right things, uh, including compliance and feeding back to that donor. What you're doing is great, but how often are donors actually asked what, what it was in their heart that caused them to give in the first place. And if you do that, you can triple your fundraising and raise a million dollars. And I used to raise millions from a very small list. And I remember how important that was. So I hope that helps. Awesome. Awesome. Christian, uh, thank you so much for sharing your time and your resources with people. And we will post the link on the interview page on the nonprofit exchange.org. And uh, it'll also be in the podcast copy. So thank you so much for sharing today. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.